Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And my name is Julie Douglas. First of all, before I get going, I apologize if my voice sounds a little weird on this particular episode. I recently had some oral surgery, get some wisdom teeth out, so if I sound a little mealy mouth, that's why. Julie, tell me this. Yes. Have you seen a little movie called The Blob? Oh, my goodness. A very long time ago, yes. Yeah, yeah, the classic black and white. No, I guess it was in color. The version I saw was colorized. Anyway. Steve McQueen in an early role. Acting, Love. Yeah, yeah. Acting opposite a little ball of interstellar goo that falls to Earth mm-hmm. inside of this neat, cute little meteorite. An old man pokes it with a stick, cracks open like an egg, and then he pokes it with a stick, of course, because that's what you do when you encounter potentially volatile substances from another world. We can't help ourselves. Exactly. We need to know. So it crawls down his arm and it starts eating him. Mm-hmm. And then it eats more and more and it just grows and grows into this colossal life form that everyone has to deal with. And if you haven't seen it, do check it out. Awesome theme music by Bob Bacharach, I believe. Oh, are you kidding? Bacharach did that? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. It's a nice little gem of a tune. When you do that, I feel like I need a martini. Yeah, it, it is definitely a martini-worthy bit of music. But the idea of this movie that is central to what we're going to talk about here, or maybe not central, but you know, <laughs> worth kicking off with, the idea that life could come here mm-hmm. sort of accidentally from another world mm-hmm. and then grow into something big. And we have talked about this in roundabout ways. We talked about what happens when a star dies, right? Mm-hmm. And we talked about stardust, all, yeah. stardust, all this stuff that ejects into the universe and how those are the building blocks. But what remains is this question of how exactly here on Earth did these chemicals become complex organisms? So we're going to talk a little bit today about this. And there's a great article by Andrew Grant, and I believe it's called Cosmic Blueprint for Life that details some of what we're going to talk about today. So let's fast forward back to the star. Way before we even get to the blob phase and the old man uh, losing his arm to space jelly, distantly, both in time and space, mm-hmm. a star dies. Okay, It runs out of its nuclear fuel. And it becomes unstable, all right? There's no longer enough fuel to keep up this colossal creation that is a star. It's this enormous engine. Mm -hmm. And if it doesn't have fuel to burn, it becomes unstable and it collapses or explodes. This is where we get things like black holes, but it's also where we get supernovas. So in this case, the star explodes. And when it does, it expels a shell of searing hot atoms. This includes things like hydrogen, carbon, oxygen, And some of those rogue atoms float into nearby gas clouds, and Mm -hmm. they stick to the fine grains of dust there. Now, it's very cold here. We're talking negative 440 degrees Fahrenheit. And there, this process called accretion begins to take place. I think we've discussed this before, and we definitely discussed it in one of our Stuff to Blow Your Kids Mind episodes. We did, yeah. Where we talk about gravity and how it stirs things to life. Mm -hmm. So you have... These particles, they float around, they float around, and... Uh, they so, glom onto each they, other. Yeah, they glom, glom on. onto each other, and it's like a snowball rolling down a mountain. Two particles come together to form a slightly bigger particle, and then they pull in other particles. Their mass is growing, their gravitational pull is growing, and eventually we end up with a very young star mm-hmm. that is being born out of this ejected material. So the simple atoms of hydrogen, carbon, and oxygen become complex organic molecules, And it's these carbon-bearing compounds that become the raw material for life. And planets eventually actually form from these materials. We say all of this because, again, we're trying to get to, well, how exactly then did life on Earth here occur? Because we understand how the planets formed 
But us sitting here, as, as crazy complex beings that came from these rudimentary single bacterial cells, how did this happen? So this brings us to a little concept called panspermia, which is... No in jokes, a, please. Yeah. All right. In a nutshell, we're talking about the blob scenario, the idea that life could travel to another planet in the form of, say, a meteorite. Mm-hmm. So we can thank Fred Hoyle for this. He was a British cosmologist, mm-hmm. and he actually wrote a 1957 science fiction novel called The Black Cloud. Right, which actually informed his ideas on right. transpermia. The novel, which I haven't read, but it's a great example of great scientific minds are, mm-hmm. are very much have science fiction on their minds. And it dealt with intelligent dust clouds in space. Mm -hmm. Uh, He ends up forming this idea of panspermia. Starting in the 1960s, he writes a series of academic papers describing how bacterial cells could make their way from interstellar dust grains to comets and eventually down to planets like Earth. Okay, so it's the 60s. People think he's nuts. Because nobody thought that prebiotic molecules or microbes could survive in the harsh vacuum of space. You know, it was assumed that space was too cold and too low density for any sort of molecule to form. But now we know that's not the case. We know that it's possible. For instance, in 1969, a 200-pound meteorite hurtled to the ground in Australia. Mm -hmm. And uh, they did some analysis on it, and they found that the rock contained millions of organic compounds, including amino acids. And nucleobases. Yes. Which we'll talk about in a little while. I don't want to jump the gun there, but that's really exciting information. And similar meteorites like the one that crashed landed in Australia and comets would have blanketed the Earth with organic chemicals from the time the Earth was born about 4.5 billion years ago until the era when life appeared a few hundred million years later. Okay, so for everybody listening out there, the idea, again, is that this material is hitching a ride on a comet or a meteorite, crash landing on Earth, and boom, we start to get a proliferation of life. But there is another theory, and that talks about how life could organically just, or spontaneously, I suppose you could say, happen here on Earth. And for this, we need to turn to Stanley Miller and Harold Urey. That's right. These are researchers who prepared a closed system of glass flasks and tubes and injected a gaseous mixture of methane, ammonia, hydrogen, water. And now these are four basic compounds that were thought to be abundant in Earth's primitive atmosphere. And then they applied an electric current to simulate a lightning strike Mm -hmm. that would have occurred on Earth in those primitive days as well. And lo and behold, within a week, they had produced several prebiotic compounds which then produced amino acids. So this is the same concept that we discussed in our Stuff to Blow Your Kids Mind episode. Mm -hmm. We're talking about this early ancient ocean, and then you have volcanic activity, which is stirring uh, electrical activity in the atmosphere, lightning strike, life begins to bubble. Right, and there's like a little pool of water around that volcano, right? The Frankenstein scenario. Exactly, exactly, which I love. So here's the great thing. It produces amino acids, and these are fundamental units of proteins, really important, right, Mm -hmm. if you want to create some life. But it did not produce nucleobases, which we talked about being present on that comet in Australia. These are the molecular building blocks of DNA and RNA. This is the stuff that gets passed on, the genetic information to help propagate life. Also, the researchers simulating Earth's early atmosphere with gases containing hydrogen. They used hydrogen, which reacts easily as opposed to carbon dioxide, a gas that's far less reactive but was probably much more plentiful at the time. So people kind of said, I'm not sure. This is a really interesting experiment, but it doesn't quite simulate the actual conditions of Earth, what we think uh, what was going on in, in primitive Earth at that time. So we end up looking outward again. 
for potential signs on how life ends up coming to be. In this case, let's look to astronomer Lou Snyder. Now, Snyder knew that the chemical compounds are dipolar. They have a positively charged side mm-hmm. and they have a negatively charged side. And these charged particles in motion release energy. So he theorized that some of these would spin like batons and create a faint radio wave signal. And that this would be perceivable from Earth with the right equipment. This is such a cool idea that someone seized on this, I think, is just Mm -hmm. amazing. Because this is a way to actually measure your model, right? And he also, I believe, said that each type of molecule should have its own unique energy signature, broadcasting a specific set of frequencies that could be detected and identified by astronomers. So within a few years, they identified dozens of these things. Uh, Mm -hmm. They discovered interstellar formaldehyde in 1969. And since that point, astronomers have identified more than 150 molecules in deep space, mostly by using radio telescopes. And this is interesting, too. Space chemicals that were found in just the past few years include the sweet, which is a sugar, glycolyhyde, which I just slaughtered, but you get the idea, the fragrant, which is ethyl formate, which smells like rum, and the explosive fulminic acid used in detonators. Yeah, and weirdly enough, Goldschlager. I don't know how that worked, but uh, there's yeah. like a whole nebula of it out there. Right, yeah. Oof. <laughs> Beware. Okay, so this is just really interesting that they figured out these energy signatures, and they were able to pinpoint all of these different molecules. Yeah, the whole field of astrochemistry kind of rises from this. Right. And so then there's another astronomer. His name is J. Mayo Greenberg of the University of Leiden in the Netherlands. And he found that there weren't just free-floating gas molecules in space, as they had observed in the nebula. The reason why we're talking about this, too, is because we're trying to get to this idea of where, again, are these compounds beginning Mm -hmm. and how are they getting to the earth so if you look at the nebula and you say well here are these chemicals that some of which can create the building blocks here on earth how is that actually happening what sort of interplay yeah it's one thing to figure out how they hitched a ride here but where did they come from to begin with right so he's thinking about these floating gas molecules in space and then he begins to ponder the dust in the nebulas as well as the microscopic grains of carbon and silicon and then he says hmm what would happen if interstellar gas molecules like formaldehyde collided with frigid grains of dust, they'd freeze there instantly, he decided, and they'd create another kind of environment in which there would be chemical reactions. Again, these chemical reactions are really important, mm-hmm. okay, because this is what's happening. This is that Frankenstein moment to a certain degree that's creating life. And he's thinking about the starlight also interacting with this. And he begins to think, ah, infrared telescopes could help us with this. And he's thinking, okay, let's point them at some dust clouds and he actually finds dips at specific frequencies corresponding to molecules, including methanol, ammonia, and water ice. So what we need here is an experiment, right? What we need here is a nebula in a box. <laughs> and I'm surprised we didn't do this one for Stuff to Blow Your Kid's Mind. It sounds so easy. He turns to a man by the name of Louis Alamandalo. He is a Berkeley PhD graduate in low-temperature chemistry, so mm-hmm. perfect person to turn to for this. And Alamandalo recreates the kinds of reactions that might take place with these microscopic icy grains, and this is how he does it. First of all, he gets his equipment together to chill a shoebox-sized chamber in a near vacuum so he depressurizes it to within several degrees of absolute zero. Mm-hmm. So vacuumized as cold as possible. Just trying to create space here. Yeah. yeah. Then he uses a plasma lamp to fire beams of ultraviolet light into that chamber. And this is supposed to mimic the radiation that's present in a planet or star-forming region of a dust cloud. Mm-hmm. And then he adds a gaseous mixture of simple molecules to mimic the same composition that you would see in those interstellar clouds. Then he sets back and he watches the magic happen. 
or the science, as it were. That's right. What is revealed is that not only that some chemicals reactions really do occur at extremely low temperatures. Because, again, remember back to the 1960s, people thought it's way too cold for anything really to be happening. So he plays out this idea that, yes, actually chemical reactions can occur at extremely low temperatures, minus 480 degrees Fahrenheit, but also that these reactions produce other reactive chemicals, thereby providing the spark, really important, for molecular hookups here. So this nebula in a box experiment has been done over and over again and recently has yielded intricate molecular rings containing carbon, nitrogen, and hydrogen, fatty acid-like molecules, that's so cool, that look and behave like the membranes protecting living cells and nucleic acids or nucleotides, the primary components of RNA and DNA. So again, we're getting back to this idea of chicken and egg, although in this case it's more like, is it the nebula, is it the comet, or did it happen here on Earth? Right. Could these reactions be happening in these interstellar dust clouds? Yeah, in these very chilling environments. Right, and being ejected out in the form of a comet and landing here on Earth, sort of kind of ready-made, you know, sort yeah. of like your microwave meal, ready for Earth out of the box. In a way, this kind of jives with the blob, because <laughs> at, at the end of the blob, they learn that they can't quite actually kill the blob, but what they can do is that they can freeze it with, I think they were using fire extinguishers, which was weird. No, surely not. That wouldn't make scientific sense. But at any rate, they chill this thing down, they strap it to a helicopter, and they take it to the North Pole. But it does not kill it. It just preserves it. So even here we see the idea that life, interstellar life, would be able to sustain very low temperatures. Well, and there's a Emory University astrochemist by the name of Susanna Whittakus Weaver. And she, through a series of models and experiments, has demonstrated that ultraviolet radiation can break chemical bonds and split molecules into highly reactive fragments called radicals. And this is important because, again... In this nebula, you're seeing the possibility that these more complex chemical reactions can be happening. And there's a possibility that, again, this is the spark of life happening. All right, well, we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to get back to all this. Uh, so hang in there one second. And we're back. The ramifications here are not all just either far off in time or far off in space. For instance, we can look at the moon Titan, one of Saturn's moons. And here we see the, based on some of the research, we definitely see the potential for these organic compounds. Is this the one that has the atmosphere that is similar to the Earth, but it's like in slow-mo? Yeah, it has a thick methane-tinged atmosphere, and it's reminiscent of an early, Primitive yeah, prim- early Earth. Earth atmosphere. And it has pools of hydrocarbons on its surface, the only known bodies of liquid on any other world than our own. So astrobiologists and astrochemists have been very interested in Titan for some time now. Yeah, because the idea, again, is that this is a snapshot of what the Earth may have looked like billions of years ago and that we can begin to observe, although slow-mo, these reactions. And this is what they're trying to get at. They want to know what's going on four billion years ago. That's why they're creating a nebula in a box. And they want to know where did this material come from. We know that some meteorites contain amino acids and nucleobases, but the idea is, did they get scooped up, those molecules from dust clouds, and then created them later on their interplanetary course? Or were they, again, ready-made out of the box as soon as they landed here? Which leads to this question, how common could life in the universe be? That's what we really want to get to, right? Yeah, that's the big question. Is life, is it just a sort of a one in a billion fluke? Is there a higher potential for life on other worlds as we continue to expand out into the galaxy? Are we going to be surprised or are we going to be disappointed by the presence of life? 
Well, and Andrew Grant says that if meteorites create most of the direct chemical precursors of life, our solar system might be an unusual case if we're dependent on the meteorites for really creating the chemical reactions, right? But, 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 if dust clouds can manufacture these molecules on their own, and we know these dust clouds are all over the place in space, right? then life should be prevalent throughout the universe. Yeah. I mean, that kind of rocks my world right there. Yeah. Who knows how complex life we're talking about. A world like Titan, things are going to develop at a much slower pace on a world like that. Mm-hmm. And certainly not every world is going to have the Goldilocks-type conditions that would be present for life to develop. and then Too de- cold, too hot, just right, is what yeah. you're talking about? Or also, you have to factor in issues of electromagnetic shielding. How long a window are you looking at for life to develop without mm-hmm. a catastrophic impact event? occurring. Right. So assuming that your planet had a nice position with a sun, right? Mm -hmm. Not talking about the Earth, but a planet. And you had everything sort of in place. The idea is that any one of these dust clouds out there could give you the material to create life on one of those planets if it has the correct conditions to support it. Yeah. We come from a carbon-based bias, so that's a whole other issue. Okay. So we should know more about this. I would say probably within the next decade, there's the Atacama Large Millimeter Sub-Millimeter Array. That's short, ALMA, in Chile. Mm-hmm. And that's a network of 66 radio dishes that will provide unprecedented resolution and sensitivity when it becomes fully operational later this year. There are two space-based infrared observatories. There's the European Space Agency's Herschel Space Observatory and NASA's James Webb Telescope, scheduled to launch in 2014. So that should allow astronomers a better way to peer into these nebula and, and try to figure out what's going on. Yeah, especially the Goldschlager Nebula. Very interested to see. I, what I, kind you of had that, you had that little there. smile on your face. I knew something was coming up there. The Goldschlager Nebula. But these radicals that Weaver discovered, just to see how those little dudes are actually acting out, the ability to like take a much closer look at this and get closer to this answer about how life came to be here on Earth. Pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, mind-blowing stuff, to be sure. All right, well, let's call over the robot and see what kind of listener mail we have for today. Here's one from Andy. Andy writes in and says, Hi, Robert and Julie. And he's responding to our lucid dreaming episode, which we've received a ton of comments from. Andy says, I wanted to tell you that the night after I listened to the episode about lucid dreaming, I did, in fact, lucid dream. It was a fantastic moment for me since I've always been utterly fascinated by lucid dreaming but have never seriously attempted any technique. In the dream, I realized I was dreaming and had to concentrate to not wake up. I told my friend in the dream that this was a dream and then demonstrated by making a little red ball appear and disappear in my hand. I don't remember what happened afterwards, but it was still a fantastic feeling. I'm going to credit you guys for that, so thanks. All the best, Andy. Well, that is awesome. I still have not lucid dreamed, to my knowledge, that I can remember, and it didn't occur after we did the podcast either. So the idea that we could cover this topic and maybe grease the wheels a little for someone else to experience lucid dreaming, I think that's awesome. Yeah, we have gotten so many cool lucid dreaming emails, a lot of them having to deal with flying Yes. and how to control. I mean, to, for someone who lucid dreams like myself, I've just been like, wow, there's so many different issues that are being brought up that we'd probably do a separate podcast on. Mm-hmm. I don't know that people would want exclusively a podcast about flying and lucid dreams, but it's it's pretty fascinating stuff. Uh, And then here's another one from Debbie. Debbie writes in about lucid dreaming, and she says, Hi, Robert and Julie. First off, I love your podcast. Being a psych undergrad, I really get a kick out of all the brain-related podcasts, so thanks for being so entertaining. Second, I just listened to Lucid Dreaming podcast, and that was great. It brought up a question that I've never really thought of before. 
While researchers are still pretty up in the air to the exact purpose of dreaming, there has been some pretty interesting studies that suggest that it may be a way to consolidate our daily activities and help to either build memories, both somatic and sensory, and or to deal with emotional distress strain. Uh, we discussed this in, a, mm-hmm. in an episode. I just wondered if all these lucid dreaming advocates who want us to stop wasting our dream time by using it for virtual reality entertainment could lead to us losing something that we need and use to help our memories consolidate. Just huh. an idea that popped into my head while listening. It made me think of the scene from Donnie Darko where Donnie and Gretchen present the glasses that show a baby beautiful pictures when they sleep so they aren't exposed to darkness. To which the teacher asks them if they don't think the darkness is there for a reason. Thanks again for the total brain trip uh, of the podcast. Keep up the great work, guys. And uh, Debbie, by the way, is one of our many Australian listeners. So that's pretty awesome. And finally, a little bit of listener mail related to one of the episodes we did about toilets. uh, Is this Toilets of the Future? Yeah, Toilets of the Future, I believe. And we were able to participate in a mystery here. So, Tim, who's also from Australia, another one of our awesome Australian listeners, writes in and says, Dear Robert and Julie, I just finished listening to your podcast about toilets, and I'd like to thank you both for answering a toilet-related mystery that I have been carrying around with me for 15 years. I used to work at a place where a half a dozen males shared one bathroom cubicle. Always a tough situation. There was one particular work colleague that would leave behind shoe prints on the toilet seat, and I could never work out why. My theory at the time was that he was smoking in the cubicle and standing on the seat to surreptitiously blow the smoke out of an air vent. However, I was never satisfied with this theory, as the prints consistently faced away from the cistern in the opposite direction of the air vent. Having listened to your podcast and remembering my colleague was Vietnamese, it now occurred to me that he was probably squatting on the top of the bowl. Mental. Case closed. Tim, Australia. I love that. That's great. A, that we help solve a mystery. And also, I do love the idea of squat toileting. I think we... we yeah, yeah. I don't know that we did a whole podcast on that, but we talked about how in the West we're pretty much doing it wrong. Yeah. There's not a lot of innovation going into toilets. We kind of got to a certain point. We have this elaborate throne that we sit on that makes no sense from an evolutionary standpoint. And we're like, it works, good enough, we'll tinker with water management later on, but for the most part, this is good. But in many other cultures, they're still very much in, in a squat-based system mm-hmm. where they're they're squatting, and you have your thighs are pushing in on your gut, which mm-hmm. is supposedly giving you more support. There's less straining. They think medical problems that mm-hmm. result from the way we sit on a throne in the West uh, yeah. because there is straining. So. Yeah, it makes more sense to do the squat. And you Pop do, the squat. Yeah, and that's why you see some very, very low toilets in many Eastern countries. There are also some seats that we, I think we discussed in this podcast where it's like a Western-style toilet seat, but with optional footrests. Right, you can get a platform. Yeah. This, I think, is so great. Didn't you say you tried to introduce this to your family? I really, like, I sent this article to my family, and I was like, this is, the, you, we, everybody needs to get a platform on their toilet. And uh, it got crickets back. Ah. Nobody bought into it. One day. It'll come, and then they'll all be saying, oh, we should have listened to Julie. Yeah. Well, maybe I should lead the charge by actually getting a platform on my toilet. <laughs> it's a good idea. I would try it out. So there you have it. If you would like to reach out to us and let us know what you think about this or any other topic, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook, where we are Stuff to Blow Your Mind. You can find us on Twitter, where our handle is Blow the Mind. Check out our video series, Stuff to Blow Your Kid's Mind. Ten episodes, video, great stuff. It's aimed at kids and parents and anybody. Cats. Probably get a kick out of it. Colorful, lots of crazy stuff happens. There's also a Stuff to Blow Your Mind photo contest that you should definitely enter. If you have a photo that you've taken and it looks particularly crazy, it's awesome, it's scary, it's gross, whatever, 
upload it, vote on other people's photos. If you and there's meet, a reason to do this. Yeah, because if you meet the requirements, you could potentially win an iPad. Yeah. So. I mean, other than just doing it because it's cool. It's also cool and fun. So yeah. Yep. All right. So if you have anything on your mind, please do send us an email at blowthemind@discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.